Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft's Roll podcast. I'm your host for this advertising space, and I want to thank our sponsors that make this podcast totally possible. The first sponsor is Sig Sauer. Guys, Sig is an awesome company. I'm a Sig nerd when it comes to their products. I'm a Sig junkie when it comes to training at the Sig Sauer Academy. There's always a Sig project that I want to kind of mess around with, and my current Sig project in case you're interested, is building up a SIG 220 pistol that I should be able to acquire pretty soon from some department trade-ins a couple towns over from my hometown, put on a threaded barrel for that guy, and then attach that, or I should say attach my SRD 45 suppressor, which is made by SIG, to that pistol. And that will be my dedicated 45 ACP suppressor pistol. So I don't know. Like I said, I'm a nerd. Um, I built up a lot of different things over the years, plugging and playing with the 320 and the 365 and the SIG tread pistol and the MPX, which by the way, the MPX is probably the most fun firearm you will ever shoot uh, just because the trigger is super, super fine, very little recoil. And, you know, people joke and they say that the MPX is the MP5 killer. And I'm not surprised. Uh, Guys, Sig Sauer is one of those companies, like I said, they have products, they have training, please check out the Sig Sauer Academy. There are a lot of good folks that train up there. I've had incredible opportunities to train with Sig. Bullets on vehicles is one of my favorite classes. The three-day introduction to long range or precision scope rifle, that's a great class. The defensive shotgun class is awesome. You know, a lot of people poo-poo the shotgun and the instructors up at Sig, they know how to run a gun. And when you are you know, using the combination of a shotgun and a pistol and, you know, you're getting a chance to work around barriers. And I mean, it's just a fun class playing with the pig. So please check out Sig Sauer. Please check out Sig Sauer Academy. They are solid, solid people, great company, and we're proud to be affiliated with them. There is another company we want to recognize, and that is Vertex. Guys, there is a discount code that I want to alert you to, and that's 20% off using the code get this ready really original fieldcraft that's f i e l d c r a f t fieldcraft will get you 20% off of the vertex website and vertex is a company that we've partnered up with over the the past couple of years they've attended a couple of our trade shows i know a bunch of the guys here have vertex bags you know i've worn vertex pants for a while you know I, i'm more familiar with their apparel than their bags but i'll tell you that their pants when i did a tv pilot show for the history channel in 2016 i wore a pair of their pants through the desert and 25 miles through all sorts of nasty stuff their pants was i i put all this like pine resin inside my pant pockets i still have those pants to this day with that resin in there Uh, those pants are going on six years now and they're badass they're great great for training so uh the interesting thing with with vertex in addition to getting 20% off of your order, you can pay attention to their site because maybe, and I'm saying maybe, but I really mean definitely, we'll be launching an updated version of our recce shirt. We had it a generation one recce shirt. It was really, really popular. It's my favorite travel shirt to this day, right? There are snap buttons instead of just like regular buttons. And it's just a really comfortable shirt. Well, I've seen the prototype of the one that Vertex is doing and it's great. So pay attention. It's coming up. That's going to be the new recce shirt from Vertex. Again, 20% off of their site with the code FIELDCRAFT. And their site is www.vertex. That's V-E-R-T-X.com. All right, guys, here we go. Let's get to this podcast. What's going on, guys? Kevin Estella here with Fieldcraft Survival. 
this is going to be a, a little bit of an extensive background podcast. And what I mean by that is, you know, I've been asked over the years, how did I join the company and how did Fieldcraft pick me? And it's usually same iteration of, of you know, question. Like, what's your background? Tell me about your dad. I, I heard you lived in the jungle. I heard, you know, you did some you, you did some stuff before you joined Fieldcraft. Like you were a teacher, you know, it's usually that type of thing. So what I wanted to do is I kind of wanted to take some inspiration from my good buddy over here, Kevin Owens. And what I wanted to do is give you a little bit of a deep dive into my background and explain a little bit about this, a little bit about that. And I'm going to do this in two different parts. Okay. So I'm going to talk roughly up until the point that I started my own company, which was in 2011. So this podcast is going to cover my path to becoming a quote unquote survival or a bushcraft instructor starting from childhood all the way up to 2011. And then what I'll do is in a second podcast, I'll cover 2011 to 2020. So let's start off by, by saying this, you know, there are many people I've had on the, the podcast who have told such incredible stories and I've been on the, on the receiving end. I've been a guest on other podcasts and I've had a chance to tell some pretty awesome things about my life, but I don't think I've ever really done a very, very focused, dedicated discussion or explanation of the whole survival thing. And, you know, it's funny because when you go on a podcast, the discussion is usually led by the podcast host. And you might be right at the verge of saying something, and then the podcast host takes it in another direction. Well, what I wanted to do is I wanted to provide an, a, a true explanation of my journey, which is a unique journey. And if you guys try copying it, you might come close, but keep in mind, you're never going to have the same experiences as the next person. And I just want to talk about what you will be investing into this concept of becoming an instructor, right? Because it's not just an investment in, in money, you know, and your, your time that you're taking and you're using to become, you know, better studied in various courses and whatnot, but there's definitely an investment of energy and like any investment, sometimes those investments pay off. Sometimes those investments will hurt you. And there's no doubt in the course of me getting to Fieldcraft, I lost friends and relationships and, you know, there were some bridges that were burned and things like that. So I just want to explain all that because I get that question a lot. Like, Hey, I want to do what you do. And it's like, before you decide that you want to give up your career and a pension, like I did, you might want to know what's involved. So let's start off with this. There's no such thing as a universally govern, governed survival instructor title. Okay. There's no such thing. If you go to a primitive school and you get the title survival instructor by whoever's teaching. And then you go to say the, the modern military and you say, Hey, I'm a survival instructor. There's going to be some type of vetting. It's not like you are going to be universally uh, respected or understood. And there is no such thing as a nationally registered or nationally recognized survival instructor title. It's not like paramedics, right? You can get a national paramedic or national EMT certification. If you go through one school, another school might not recognize you. And you got to be very wary of people who are offering certification courses in a set number of days or number of hours. And they'll say, Hey, we certify you as a survival instructor, bushcraft instructor, whatever. 
because that certification is only recognized through their organization. And you can say I'm recognized through that organization, but someone would have to understand what that organization is to actually respect it. So just be very careful of that. The other thing is, do you want to be known as a survival instructor or a bushcraft instructor? Because survival is a very, very small segment of outdoor skills that relates to dealing with emergencies. It deals with preventing an emergency from becoming a survival situation or how to survive through the worst case scenario. Whereas bushcraft or fieldcraft, that's the bigger picture. Okay. There's less of a sense of urgency with the title bushcraft instructor because bushcrafters and fieldcrafters, they're basically one and the same. They know how to perform survival skills. They can light fires, they can build shelters, but they may also have an understanding of how to make fishing nets for long-term food gathering. They may know how to uh, utilize tools to build semi-permanent structures instead of just uh, temporary structures or emergency structures. So realize that survival instructor is a very narrow focus of study. And if you're only studying survival skills, then you are missing out on studying some of the really awesome skills that are just fun to, to mess around with when you go in the great outdoors. I mean, camp cooking camp cooking will get you fat. It tastes pretty damn good. It's not necessarily a survival skill, but if you ever go on a long extended expedition or trip uh, into the great outdoors, it is really, really nice to be able to make yourself a decent meal or make your camp buddies or your, your travel companions really, really good food and, and kind of smooth it a little bit instead of just roughing it, right? There's this idea that all you have to do is be resilient. All you have to be is tough. Well, there's also an expression. If you're going to be dumb, you got to be tough. I want you guys to be smart. I want you guys to be able to do all these skills. So when you go out into the great outdoors, people want to be around you, right? And you know how to solve problems and it's not all gloom and doom. Okay. So recognize that. Another thing I'm going to tell you guys, if you're planning on embarking on a path to become either survival instructor, bushcraft instructor, outdoor skills educator, whatever title you use, recognize that you are going to become like your instructor. There's no doubt about it. When I was in public education and like any teacher, I had to go through student teaching where I had cooperating teachers that were basically like my supervising teachers, making sure I wasn't going to screw up. And when I was a teacher, I could look back and say, man, that lesson, that was definitely a Nancy Nevins lesson or that was definitely a, a Bobby Cristino lesson or Sal Capola lesson or Joe Morgan lesson. These are all folks, by the way, that taught at Wolcott High School. So shout out to the Wolcott High crew over there. Um, and from a survival perspective, I know, you know, my instructors that I had, you know, main primitive skills school, I'll talk about Mike Douglas and Mal Stevens and uh, Arthur Haynes and all those guys later on, as well as Tim Smith and Jack Mountain and Marty, of course, you know, there's no doubt I taught like them and I had lessons where I was like, damn, I learned that from that guy. So you need to figure out what kind of instructor you want to be. And there are the outdoor educators that are very, you know, hippie granola where it's like, let's get together and let's sing Kumbaya and hold hands and all that. Then there are the people that want to beat you down, right? They, they want to make it kind of like a, like a CrossFit or a boot camp type of thing. You will become like that person. And I would rec recommend that you train under multiple different types of people. So you can say, I have that different perspective. I understand it. I don't necessarily agree with it, but at least I can speak to it because I've experienced it. Okay. As opposed to being a one trick pony where it's like, well, I learned this in the military. 
Okay, only the military, right? Or I learned this from a stones and bones guy, only a primitive tech person. You want to be able to say that you know a little bit of everything because then you're not that one-sided you know, solution to a problem. You can say, look, you can do it this way. You can do it that way. Here's another solution. There are many correct ways. There is not one way. That goes over extremely well with your students. So please avoid following one particular philosophy to almost to like a cult-like status where it's like, man, I'm going to start dressing like my instructor and I'm going to use the words that that instructor uses. And, you know, if everyone talks about this and I got to talk about it too. Like just be very freaking careful. Okay. There are a lot of people out there that know how marketable survival and bushcraft are. And if you are studying with someone who is trying to make a miniature clone of themselves run. Okay. What I want to do is I kind of want to just talk about my story and I'm going to get move pretty quickly up through uh, the story about, you know, my childhood into my early twenties. And you'll see that from early twenties until late twenties, it'll take a while to explain. So as you guys know, if you have been following me for a while, you know, my story, my dad grew up in the Philippines during world war two, January 4th, uh, 1939, right? That was his birthday. So in January of 41, Japanese Imperial army invades. My grandfather moved a lot of the town into the jungle and they lived there from 1941 to 1945. My dad came over to this country in 1965, met my mother. I'm the youngest of three. And as a kid, I looked up to my dad. I still look up to my dad. I call him every single night. I always make sure that not a day goes by that I don't tell him that I love you, right? Because I don't know when I won't have my dad. I want to make sure that he always knows that he's appreciated. So when I was a little kid, my dad would tell me these stories of his upbringing. And that really got me interested in the great outdoors. It got me thinking about, you know, man, if my dad could do it, I could do it. Dad, show me how you did this. And at a young age, started hiking with my dad at the Barnes Nature Center in Bristol, Connecticut. My dad's first lesson to me was pick up a stick. And he said, you never know what you're going to need that stick for. It's for support, but you can also grab things with it. You can hit people with it. And I'm like five years old talking about hitting people with sticks. Yeah, I'm definitely half Filipino. So at a young age, I got really interested in the great outdoors. And my dad never taught me how to throw a football. He never taught me how to swing a baseball bat. Those are things I had to learn from friends. And instead, my dad taught me survival skills, right? He showed me things. He drew me pictures on yellow legal pads with a pen and paper. Because my dad, before he decided to become a physician, he almost went into architecture because he was very gifted with with drawing. So uh, over the years, that's what I did. I was hiking. I was fishing with my uncle Ray and, you know, my cousin Bobby and you know, I, I, as a child, I would go hiking on South Mountain in Bristol with, you know, my friend Jared Levesque and his father, Roger, and, and next door neighbor, Matt Newton. And I mean, these are all names that were part of my childhood and part of my development, you know? And I remember it was a fun childhood learning how to camp and learning how to fish and learning how to be, you know, an outdoorsman. And the whole time, I mean, I was fascinated by this whole idea of survival and, you know, Rambo was you know, one of my childhood heroes, even before I understood what first blood was about, I thought it was awesome that he jumped off a tree and he he killed a pig. So, you know, knives were always in my, my upbringing. I mean, I have photos of me with early toy knives that drove my mother crazy. And, you know, I remember getting my first Swiss army knife when I was about six years old. So knives were always something that was in my life. And I, I really, really enjoyed using them in the great outdoors and sometimes sneaking some from 
you know, the kitchen into the backyard because of, Hey, it was a big knife. It's got to work like Rambo's. And then I realized that a good kitchen knife is not the same as a durable outdoors knife. So, uh, at some point I decided, I was like, okay, I need to get a job. And I became a lifeguard, which got me outside. And, you know, it was building a skill set, right? Learning how to do first aid, learning how to do various things with like river current. You know, when I worked as a canoeing and kayaking instructor, I had to pull a lot of people out of the river that tip their canoes and, and their kayaks. So that eventually would help. And then, as I just mentioned, at some point I left canoeing, I left lifeguarding to become a canoeing and kayaking instructor at Mainstream Canoe in Connecticut. So, you know, I was teaching on a class three, sometimes a class four river, but a lot of twos and a lot of two pluses with big 16, sometimes 18 foot long Discovery 169 canoes um, or the big camper canoe that we had that was Royal X. So, you know, this whole time I'm applying lessons that my dad taught me as a kid to the students that I had. And when we did campouts with like Renbrook School out of West Hartford or the Parks and Rec out of Canton or Parks and Rec out of Riverton, then I was showing them how to do oil lamps and I was showing them how to tie various knots and make fires and things like that. So up through my teenage years, it was all about uh, showing people skill sets. My senior year of high school, I got a part-time job working at Eastern Mountain Sports. And, you know, I did it primarily for the discounts. I'm not going to lie. When you first work for Eastern Mountain Sports back then, I think it was like the first 90 days, you got 20% off. And then after 90 days, you got 35% off. And then twice a year, they would do uh, employee discount days or employee discount week. And at one point, they would give you 48% off of the store. Holy crap, did I ring up a bill. So when I first started, it was all about the gear. But Eastern Mountain Sports, I also took a couple climbing courses, right? Winter mountaineering courses, because that was part of the deal. The whole time I'm building up my my knowledge of knots and the technical aspect of gear, which is really, really important because when you eventually start teaching courses, people are going to ask, well, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And to be able to explain to someone without skipping a beat, listen, that type of synthetic fill in a bag, it's not a continuous filament. It is going to have cold spots and you can start using terminology correctly instead of blowing smoke up people's asses. It goes a long way. If you're going to be an instructor, your word is very, very important. And the there's definitely, there's 100% in my eyes, and I think it's not just mine, there's an importance to being accurate with what you say. If you are inaccurate, your errors in what you provide your students could get people injured or killed. I would not be able to sleep at night if I knew that I was providing bad information. I always tell people, I'm like, if you don't believe me, you can look it up. You can look at these sources. I usually, when I teach, I have two or three books with me uh, written by other authors. And I'm like, look, here's where it says this, this, and this. Oh, and by the way, I can show you right now. That's another thing we'll talk about later on is never be afraid to demo. You have to be able to demo on command. And if people question it, look, they may question what you say. They'll never deny what you can do. And if you remember that statement, right? People question what you say, but they can never deny what you do. And if you can demo like it's no one's business, then guess what? They cannot argue that you don't know your shit. All right. So now I make it through high school. I make it through college. The whole time I'm working at Eastern Mountain Sports, I'm 
you know, learning more of the gear. I'm meeting with the industry reps. I'm going on hiking trips. I'm going on camping trips. I'm going with, I remember my first trip up to Maine, up to Mount Katahdin was in 99 with uh, my good friend, Nate Perney and my friend, Frank Chirillo. We went up to Mount Katahdin and we camped out there. We thought we were badasses, right? We're carrying Buckmaster knives at the time and smoking Swisher sweet cigars and eating cheap steaks at a campfire. But it was an awesome trip, right? And we did a lot of those. Um, And I would always shoot up to either Mount Washington or I would shoot up to Baxter State Park in my early 20s. And I'm like, you know, I think I got this. And again, the whole time I'm teaching canoeing and kayaking. I eventually become the uh, training director at Mainstream, teaching canoeing and kayaking, planning things out, you know, all sorts of great stuff like that. At some point in my 20s, I said, I need to formalize my outdoor education, right? And I, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, my dad taught me right? And everyone's dad is is probably their first teacher and arguably one of the most important teachers in their lives or your mom, right? If dad's not in the picture, mom's going to be the one that's teaching you stuff. Um, doesn't matter in my opinion, who teaches you as long as you're learning from someone. Awesome. Well, at some point I was like, look, I, I need to find out if there are other people like me, I need to find out, you know, what's going on with my skill sets. Now at some point in college, I became very active on online discussion boards. And if you think about it, like this is the precursor to Facebook and Instagram, you would go on these discussion boards and you would put up a topic and people would reply and you'd have to upload photos and comment. And I mean, they became very clunky as far as communication, but that's what people used. So, you know, somewhere in 99, I was like, all right, let me, let me go on online and let me take a look. And that's where I first became aware that there is a community out there that was just as interested in survival skills as I was. So, you know, I'm, I mean, gosh, I'm all over the place here, but I mean, I started reading American survival guide in my teens and I still had a, a subscription into my twenties. I get onto blade forums and knife forums and I meet my friend, Brian Jones, who eventually makes me a moderator of them after he realizes, wow, this, this local dude actually knows a lot about knives and, and survival stuff. And that just led me down rabbit hole after rabbit hole of learning about survival kits and learning about how there's this training company and, oh, here's another one. So I think it was 2005 that I eventually went to the main primitive skills school and I took a course called the friction fire workshop up there. And then eventually I took a uh, primitive winter survival weekend course, which it was like nine degrees. And I had to sleep in a, a lean to with just the fire and the fire was made a little bit farther away from the lean to. So I froze my ass off, but I learned a lot. And then later that year, this would have been 2006. Uh, in 2006, I went to Jack mountain bushcraft and I have a chance to, to learn from Tim Smith, who Tim will eventually be a, a guest on the, the podcast. He's a very intelligent man and a very traditional bushcrafter. And now I go from primitive skills with the guys up there and they were very knowledgeable of primitive skills. I mean, I watched Mike Douglas make a fire out of a piece of ice and some dried moose dung. It happened. It happened right in front of my eyes. Uh, Mike is actually one of the guys that, you know, did a foreword in my book or a recommendation in my book. And then I was like, I'm going from primitive skills to bushcraft. And I learned from Tim Smith. I was actually on his uh, weekend bushcraft course. Tim runs a lot of good courses. He even does like a semester long program for credit through one of the local colleges up in Maine. And I go up there and it's myself and it's a female. At some point, the female decides to leave. So now I basically have like a one-on-one with Tim Smith. At one point, like I'm eating with him and his wife in his kitchen and he's telling me about his kid. And like it, 
it was very cool to to have that experience with Tim. And I remember leaving a little bit early and I said, Tim, like, you got to be a dad. Like, I gotta, like, I know you're, you're doing this course uh, to provide for your family. And I'm like, I know that I think it was one of his kids' birthdays. And I was like, I can't take your time on your son's birthday or your kid's birthday. I'm like, I, I got to go. So, you know, I, I value the time that I had with Tim. Fantastic instructor. And uh, then, you know, I meet Marty. And Marty is my my late mentor. Actually, he just had he would have just had his birthday this past Monday. And Marty and his wife Aggie were at an event in North Carolina called Practice What You Preach. So I had mentioned just a few seconds ago or a few minutes ago that I got very involved with the online discussion boards. And kind of like today where you have people who hide in anonymity and they will post stuff up and say things. And it's like, I don't care who you are. You don't even have a photo up or you have no posts or you have no followers. You're just a troll. Well, there were a lot of trolls in those early days of the discussion boards that would speak a big game, but they never showed off what they could do. So Terrell Hoffman, who was one of the moderators, uh, a guy in the knife industry as a knife writer and photographer, he held an event in North Carolina, in Marion, North Carolina. And he said, you guys are going to practice what you preach. And it was an idea that he had where he was like, look, if you say you can do all this, all this stuff, you, you're like MacGyver and you know, you're, you know, this cool guy. Well, why don't you come show it? Otherwise shut up. And that was kind of like the demeanor of, of the discussion boards, the forums in 2006, 2005 and practice what you preach expanded. So I go down there and I meet Marty and it's an event where you you're there and you're showing off what you can do and you're, you're testing knives and you know, you're cooking by the fire and you're just demonstrating to everyone like, Hey, look, this is what I can do making some great friends, having a lot of laughs, sometimes getting a little too heavy into the moonshine, which, you know, my good buddy, Joe Flowers, uh, he and I, <laughs> we've got a lot of, a lot of funny stories of uh, jumping into a cave and then into a fire pond down there and maybe losing our way because of moonshine. But practice what you preach was where I met Marty. And Marty's demonstration there was awesome because it was very grounded. He was so real. You know, Marty's background was he was a army veteran, a Vietnam veteran, an army survival instructor. You know, when he first got to Vietnam, his one of the first tasks he had was to stay on a boat and do like a, a botany study of all the potential edible and medicinal plants in the area for the GIs. Like really, really interesting fella. And Marty was was a, a tough dude, right? Like when I met him, Marty was in his uh, 60s. And Marty was, I mean, a capable individual. Like you met him and you're like, this dude has seen some stuff and he could still, you know, wreck you. So uh, I decided I was like, I want to continue learning from this guy. And Marty and I, you know, clicked from the get go. You know, Marty used to joke and say that I was his adopted Filipino son. And, you know, you know, I, I miss that dude like crazy. Um, you know, we just, we just hit it off because we were both very forward. We were both the type that were you know, willing to let our actions speak louder than our words. And we could see the world through a BS filter. When someone was saying something, it's like, oh, you know, if you use a machete in the wintertime, this is an actual discussion, use a machete in the wintertime with your hand that's, you know, exposed to the air and that that steel, your hand is going to freeze to that machete. We're like, no, it's not. Watch, you know, and we would demonstrate and people would still say, well, it wasn't cold. And it's like, it was pretty damn cold. So, uh, 
I decided to formalize my outdoor education, continue along that path, studying at the Wilderness Learning Center. The Wilderness Learning Center was a full-time survival school up in Shattagay, New York, which if you know Plattsburgh and you know Malone, it's between those two. It's about 45 minutes west of Plattsburgh uh, and only about 20 minutes away from Malone, but it's right on the U.S.-Canada border. And I mean literally on the U.S.-Canada border where Marty's property extended along what's called the slash where Department of Homeland Security cuts it so they can see if someone's crossing over. And uh, I trained up there. I took my first course in August of 2006. I am up there. Let's see, there was Frank. There was, I'm trying to think of the names of the students in my class. Frank, Evan, and then there was, God, I cannot remember her name. Frank, Evan, there was a, there was a female who worked for the army and she did mapping. Well, Marty is teaching, right? And a lot of my teaching methods and my style today, I can say directly from my time at the Wilderness Learning Center. You arrive on Sunday and Marty goes right into survival psychology and he tells these amazing stories of survival psychology. And then day one, he goes right into survival kits and then land navigation. And the way that we used to teach it up there was we would teach the map first, the compass on day two, and then the map and compass on day three. So it was really a very extended period of instruction on map and compass. And the reason being Marty's logic was if you end up in an emergency, it's probably because you got lost. So here's how we can address what is probably going to get you in trouble. So I proceed to finish up that that course. It's a great class. I mean, we did 8.30 was woo-woo, which stood for wake up, wash up. And then we went from 8.30 until noon. Aggie cooked everyone lunch. And then we went from one until five or six. And then Aggie cooked dinner. And then we had evening sessions. So we would jam pack a lot of knowledge into a single week. And that's kind of why, you know, I've loved teaching these two-day courses here at Fieldcraft because after the the primary instruction is done, say from 8.30 or 9 in the morning until 4 or 5 in the afternoon, we'll take a quick dinner break and then we teach until like 9 or 10 at night. So it's very possible to get 20 hours of instruction in in person in a weekend. So I finish up that, that course at Marty's and Next thing you know, Marty's like, hey, we're doing a a rendezvous. You know, we want to invite all of our outdoor friends up to this area. So come on up. So Labor Day weekend, I'm up there, right? And I'm shooting slingshots and I'm throwing knives and I'm doing all sorts of these different things that we we have up there. We do a big potluck and we're building this community and, and I'm meeting different people from different industries in the survival space, right? And then next thing you know, it was, man, that was a lot of fun. We should do some trips. So we would get these trips like down to Gossman Knives in Maryland, and we'd get trips to uh, the Adirondacks, and we'd get trips to, I mean, all over the place. I mean, you name it, we were traveling and we were training. And in that year between 2006 and 2007, because I already decided after I finished up the 06 course and I earned a patch, right? That was another big deal. Like Marty would only let you earn patches. You could never buy them which is something I still stand by. Like, I love the idea of having something exclusive that you have to earn. Um, I'll talk more about that in the next podcast. But uh, I was like, I need to take the advanced class. So I'm training with Marty the whole year. I'm doing these events and 2007 rolls around and I, you know, go to the advanced class and Marty's like, well, hey, I need you to, or I signed up for the advanced class and Marty's like, look, I need you to come up a, a week early for the basic. I'm like, Marty, I already took the basic. He goes, no, I need you up there. 
So now I get up there and he's talking to everyone. He introduces me and goes, oh yeah, by the way, that's Kevin. He's my new instructor. And it was just like that. Um, I never asked for it. People who knew Marty and knew me said that Marty would speak very highly of me. And he's like, wow, this guy's got his head on his shoulders. He's got a good presentation in front of the students. He knows his stuff. And Marty didn't hire many instructors, right? Marty had one who kind of burnt a bridge with him. And then there was Bobby Plude who worked with me. And then uh, there was another who worked with Marty prior, you know, whose grandfather was very well known in, in the outdoor world. So it was a, a privilege to work with Marty. Now, when I got to put on that instructor rocker, right? Cause I mean, I got the patch from Marty that said wilderness learning center, but then he had a yellow instructor rocker that he put over the patch. That was a big deal because there weren't many of those going around. And to have that respect from a mentor like Marty meant the world to me, you know, to know this is a guy who at, you know, 70 something years of age, his son that he had wasn't into the outdoors. And Marty's wife would say that Marty, you know, treats me like a son, man, that, that was so important, so powerful. And there was loyalty there, right? Loyalty going both ways. And that's super important too. You'll see a lot of survival schools today where there's going to be a front runner, someone who's like the focal piece of the institution. And then there's going to be other instructors. And many of those instructors that fall under that front runner, they eventually pick up and leave, whether they start their own thing or they are fired or whatever. It's usually a problem with the front runner, right? There's definitely ego involved. Well, it wasn't the case with Marty, right? I mean, Marty was more about elevating me as an instructor than he was saying, I'm better than Kevin. You know, Marty was always complimentary. He was always, you know, kind of like a, like a showman who signals to the person who's performing with him, like, hey, take a bow. Marty always wanted to share the stage. He never wanted to steal the limelight. So you got to be careful of that, right? Like, what is the characteristic of the person that runs a school that you're you're studying at? And, and listen, it, it happens, right? I mean, there are people that are very ego-driven and it can destroy a school. It's got to be about the mission and not the person. Hey, everyone, Doc Jones here. Going to take a second to talk about the sponsor of today's podcast, which today is Ketone IQ. And I've got a pretty sweet discount code here at the end of this, so make sure you stay tuned. Uh, Ketone IQ is a drinkable supplement drink, which is essentially straight ketones. Uh, normally you have to go through some type of effort to unlock this fuel source. Ketones are our body's natural fuel source, super clean. We've been using them for thousands of years, depending on what our, our state is. And again, normally uh, what we hear about a lot is a, that's carb restriction or a, a fasted state, which I'm not very good at, nor uh, do I like at all. And so if I don't like it, I'm generally not going to do it. But uh, when I can drink ketone IQ and 45 minutes later start to reap some of those benefits, it's uh, been kind of a, a, a sweet boost in the middle of the day, which is when I try to use it for more uh, cognitive work, cognitive bouts. I'm, I'm writing, I'm answering emails, I'm calling, I'm, I'm, you know, building curriculum, doing different things in the middle of the day. So uh, I like to use an energy source that makes me feel more level uh, without kind of, and I don't ever really get jittery off of caffeine anymore. That ship is, is long sailed. But I'm trying to avoid the half-life. I fell asleep better at the in the evening when I use Ketone IQ for an energy source versus caffeine after 2 o'clock, which is something I try to avoid. The other thing that I really like is for recovery. 
Um, I've been doing a couple different training sessions and I've been doing small little cycles over three or four weeks, but they get pretty intense. So I've uh, cycled this on and off a little bit. And I've noticed that with you know training sessions, three, four, five weeks long, I tend to, to tilt off. And so using ketone IQ though for recovery, which is some of the benefits that I found when I was just doing a little bit of research, uh, I have noticed that Week three, week four, I, I don't tend to see the same type of stress on my body, the variation in my heart rate that I might normally find. And so I think it's been a, a, a fun little help and I'm looking forward to experimenting with it more. So if you're just getting back to the gym or again, you've got a tough little training session bout planned over the next little while, then uh, head on over to hvmn.com. That's Hotel Victor Mike November. And you can use the code FIELDCRAFT for 15% off, which is a pretty sweet deal. So head on over, check that out. Thanks. So now let's talk about another kind of parallel path. We're at about 2006, 2007, right? 2007 is when I become an instructor with Marty. At the same time, I said to myself, I'm like, look, I know how to survive in the great outdoors. I've kind of proven myself, but you know, I don't know how I would do in an urban environment. You know, I, it's been years since I trained in martial arts, right? Like I was a little kid and I did Ed Parker's Kenpo Karate and I was like, I kind of want to do martial arts again. I'm half Filipino. I should find a Filipino martial arts school. So I found one in my hometown, just happened to be in my hometown. And I started training there with Guru Rich and Guru Su um, at Raisu Martial Arts. Now they are Manong and Manang. That's their formal title as elder um, in the system. And the martial art I was training in was Sayak. Now Sayak if you follow Jack Carr's novels and you've seen the cross tomahawks, those are Sayak tomahawks. They're R&D tomahawks, which stands for Raphael and Daniel, Tuhan Raphael, Kayanin, and Daniel Winkler. But Sayak has been around for a long time. And I really, really find this interesting. So I started training there. And then at one point, the question came up, well, Kevin, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a high school history teacher. But I also, in the summertime and when I'm free, I teach wilderness survival. And they said to me, they're like, oh, we do that. And I'm thinking, there's no way in hell they do that. They're probably just saying this kind of like the way that a martial arts school, you know, they're like a bad car salesman, you know, park a van outside and say, you'll get a free month's membership and a free gi, right? For 30 bucks. Well, I was like, they're probably just kind of like shining me on. So next thing you know, they pull out a manual and I'm reading through the manual and it says, oh, you should carry this on your EDC. You should have this for your 72 hour kit. I'm like, holy crap, they actually do training this. And I was sold. I was like, this is awesome. I found where I'm supposed to be. So keep that in mind because as this timeline continues, there will be references to Sayak Kali, right? Filipino martial arts. And then the concept of feeder and how all of that just ties into this decision that I make in 2020 to leave teaching, right? Be the feeder and join Fieldcraft Survival. So now I'm on this trajectory as a survival instructor for multiple years. And, you know, this journey is an interesting one because there are landmines everywhere. And what I mean by landmines, there are things that can derail a person or just blow them up. And I've seen it happen a lot. And I'm warning you right now, this type of stuff does happen. There's a lot of free stuff that gets thrown at you because people want to say, oh, it's survival instructor approved or bushcraft instructor approved, or this is the official this of the survival school. Well, you got to be really, really careful. Free stuff is going to get thrown at you and free stuff got thrown at me. 
some of the stuff I was like, I don't want it. Oh no, no, but you have to have it. No. Oh no, but I'm just going to give it to you. And I'm like, I said, no. Um, most of the stuff that I got for free that I didn't want, I just gave away. You know, I didn't owe anything to that company and I didn't feel bad because I didn't want it in the first place. And you got to be careful because you can't attach products to your name. Like at the Wilderness Learning Center, our school knife was the Bark River Fox River. But Marty tested that damn thing for a very, very long time. Prior to the Fox River, he considered the Falneven F1 and he considered, you know, a couple other knives, but he got a Fox River and he put it on his belt and he carried that thing for a long time, used it in the garden. He used it teaching courses, uh, dinner prep and whatnot. And he eventually said, this is my school knife. And he put his logo on it. And that was it. You know, I have a, a knife that I eventually designed and I've got a couple other designs that I have to my name. I will not just throw my name behind any design because you can water down your name, right? If, you know, there's that expression, if a man doesn't stand for something, he falls for anything. Well, if you put your name on everything, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Think about that one. So, uh, you know, just be careful because people are going to want your input now that you have a title or you give yourself a title, which some people do, but what's expected in return, right? I mean, if you use that product, does that mean that you cannot use any other products? Remember, there are multiple ways to get something done. And it's not like you have to say one way is the only way. Okay. There could be multiple correct ways, maybe not one best way. And if we're talking about products, technology improves over time and things do get better. So you think about it, if that technology offers a better solution and you're stuck in the past, why aren't you looking at the better solution for your students? Okay. There are people out there, there are instructors out there that are teaching more novelty skills these days that may involve the same financial investment to acquire the gear, but they don't have the same investment in terms of energy needed to accomplish task, which means they are selling you something instead of looking out for your livelihood. Be very, very careful. Think about it this way, right? A lot of you guys that are listening, you're probably into firearms. Well, there is dated technology called the flintlock pistol. And then there's the modern pistol, like the Glock that I have in my, my waistband right now. And you guys know that, you know, we have SIG as one of our sponsors. I have SIGs, I have Glocks. Again, I've got multiple solutions that are all good solutions. There's not one way, there are many ways. Well, if you carry a flintlock pistol instead of a modern sporting pistol, um, auto-loading pistol, because your mentor told you to, then your mentor doesn't know about something modern or they don't care for you enough to tell you that their old way is not as good as the new way. Be very, very careful what information you put out there. If you're telling someone to use an inferior fire starting method as opposed to the most modern effective, do you really have their best interests at heart? Okay. So now the story continues, right? My story, my journey continues and the lessons continue. I'm teaching. It's like 2007, you know, now once I'm fully in with the wilderness learning center and now I'm teaching all their courses, right? I am teaching with Marty whenever I have free time from the high school. So I would typically get out sometime in June. I'd have July and August guaranteed off and I'd be back in September. So I was teaching a lot of survival courses late June, July, and August. Winter survival, right? Like a week-long survival course in the middle of winter where the temperature rarely got above single digits. And when it got above freezing, we're talking like 34 degrees, not 
50 or 60. When I got to 34, people were taking off their shirts and doing snow baths, right? Wiping themselves down with snow because it felt like it was 80 degrees after spending a week in, you know, single digits. So I started teaching that course and I started teaching the advanced survival skills course. And I started teaching and, and instructing in different places. One of the cool things that happens when you get affiliated with a good school is that the school is going to be contacted for speaking engagements. So I would teach at like the mountainside Bible chapel in uh, the Adirondacks and I would get offers to be here and there. And, you know, I'll tell you, it just, one thing leads to another. And then people are going to say, Hey, can you write magazine articles? So that eventually happened for me. The first magazine article I wrote, a published magazine article was in Wilderness Way magazine. Now, Christopher Nierges, who is a great, great edible medicinal plants expert out of the West Coast, he uh, had a magazine called Wilderness Way. I wrote that magazine article for free to feature the edible plants course that Marty taught. And that was my first gig at magazine writing. I got my feet wet. Well, later on, at Marty's two free rendezvous he had a year, right? One was called War, which was Wilderness Adventurers Rendezvous. That was in September. And then there was Peace. That was his wife's, Aggie's uh, idea, War and Peace. Peace stood for people enjoying another camp rottery experience. Well, at those events, I met uh, Dan Coppins. Dan Coppins, he uh, was out of Ohio and he ran a company at the time that was called Blind Horse Knives. He ran that company with a guy named LT Wright, which you might know those two companies now, LT Wright Knives and Battle Horse Knives. Well, they were affiliated with Self-Reliance Illustrated, which was the magazine that was run by Dave Canterbury. So Dave Canterbury was one of the original guys on Dual Survivor. Uh, if you guys remember that show, I podcasted Cody Lundeen. That was actually the first podcast I ever hosted for Fieldcraft. It was originally the, the barefoot guy and the military guy. So I was writing for Self-Reliance Illustrated and it was freaking awesome, right? Because I could now scribe and I could create a record of my teachings in text and photo form that I could reference in the future and be like, look, I wrote an article on that. Here's the article. You can read about it here, right? It was pretty cool when Dave Canterbury actually selected one of my articles. It was all about teaching friction fire skills. He said, oh, this is the the editor's pick or the the top pick. And, you know, in one of his stump top reviews, he's like, oh, written by Kevin or Stella. Um, so it was pretty cool to, uh, to be recognized by, I guess you could call it a rival school, but hey, it's the magazine I was writing for. Now, you know, the survival thing is, is cool. You do get an opportunity to meet a lot of people and you get a lot of opportunities to, to train in, in crazy, crazy environments. You got to eventually, here's a, a lesson. You got to make sure that when you're training, you're there with the students. And what I mean by that is Marty had a rule. And this is maybe because Marty was a sergeant in the army. He said, if my men are in the field, I'm in the field. And that never escaped me. I was like, damn, right? Here's this guy who's in his late 70s. He's camping on an air mattress, just like we are, and drinking the same coffee. And every morning, the coffee conversations were awesome with Marty. And that was a key point. You have to be willing to do what you're asking your students to do. And it goes over extremely well for building rapport if you're sharing food and fire and hardship with them. And sometimes that hardship comes from the environment. So, you know, that's something that I feel a lot of people neglect or they say, well, 
you're going to stay out there and I'll check in with you in the morning. And then they go home and they sleep in a bed while their student is out in the field. Well, that doesn't go over too well with the student. If you want to gain respect, you are there right there with them. Now, fast forward to working here at Fieldcraft, talking to Kevin Owens. And he said when he was working overseas, the chow hall, there were multiple chow halls, right? For the indigenous forces and then the military guys from the U.S. And he said that the Green Berets always ate with the indigenous people, right? It's a, it's a bond builder. And he said other groups did not. And the indigenous looked down on those other groups. Well, it's a concept, guys. If you want to be respected, you share food, right? If you want to be respected, you share fire. If you want to be respected, you get down there in the dirt and you share that hardship with them. All right. So now this is kind of like going to be the the last story of this podcast before I, I sign this one off and I talk about 2011 on. When you get associated with a survival school and your name starts popping up on the internet as survival instructor, bushcraft instructor, outdoor skills educator, whatever, Hollywood is going to come a knocking. And listen, I will tell you that Hollywood has knocked on my door a whole bunch. Um, at one point in 2012, I'll talk about this next podcast. I was actually signed by William Morris Endeavor. My agent's name was Adam Gelvin. And I was taking all sorts of meetings with like Scott Free Productions and I mean, these big name companies as a survival instructor. Um, so Hollywood comes knocking when your name is out there. And you got to be real careful because when Hollywood comes knocking, they will talk a big game, right? And they will promise you the world and they're all silver tongued out there, right? So I remember there was an, I don't even know if I technically can talk about this because when Hollywood does come a knocking, you have to sign non-disclosure agreements many times. And let's just say this, there was a cable show that interviewed me and interviewed me for a long time. And they're like, oh yeah, we want to get you on the show. And what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And so I'm answering as honestly as I can. A few months later, the show airs and I see my quotes that I've, I've said a million times in my lifetime. And, and as an instructor, I see them on the screen against a black background and white text. I'm like, hmm, they didn't even quote me. They just put the quote up there, but they didn't put my name up there. That network is still out there. And that show was just a one-off, right? It was part of a series, a, a documentary series. That was one of my exposures. And then there was another where, you know, oh, we want you to work with this guy. We want you to, what, what if we were to put you on this show and your partner was to do something really, really dangerous that was going to potentially hurt you or endanger your life. And I said to him, I'm like, I'd walk away. And they're like, no, 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 but you can't. Um, and they're like, well, what if your, your partner got in your face? I'm like, I'd put him out of my face. I'd they're like, well, if your partner put your hands on you. And now keep in mind, I'm at this time, I'm like deep in martial arts. I'm like, they put my hands or if they put hands on me, I'm putting hands on them and they're not going to like it. And they're like, oh no, no, you can't, you can't touch your partner like that. That's wrong. That's wrong. And I was like, holy crap, this is so orchestrated and scripted. Well, one of the shows that I was in the running for was Dual Survivor. Um, I was going to be one of the personalities. Now, keep in mind, as I said at the very beginning of this podcast, there are different types of survival instructors. Cody Lindine, who was on that show, was your typical, you know, uh, bushcraft instructor, primitive skills guy, primitive guy, not a military guy. And then they got Dave Canterbury, who, you know, had a military background. 
And they put those two on there. They didn't know how to put me in a box because I'm learning from Marty, who is a military veteran. My dad is an immigrant who lived in the jungle. They couldn't easily define me. So therefore they couldn't easily cast me. Now, over the years, you're going to get a lot of misses and you got to be prepared for that. You cannot let that discourage you. In 2009, <laughs> 2009, I got one of the good hits and that was working for the History Channel. And if you've seen on the website, you've probably seen the thing that said, Kevin has worked for the History Channel. So here's more of the background. In 2009, I got selected to be part of a promotional series that aired on History International. And then it was also in movie theaters before the movies, like when they would normally have movie trailers. And it was for a show called Expedition Africa. Now, this show that eventually aired featured modern day explorers retracing as best as they could the exploits of Stanley and Livingstone, right? The explorers that met in Africa. Little did I know later on that it was sponsored by Subaru and every so often they'd put the explorers into a Subaru and then product placement and they'd drive through the Savannah and that type of thing. So what I had to do with them was they needed me for interview and then they needed me for behind the scenes as like a SME, which by the way, I hate the word expert. You know, if people say, what are you? I'll say I'm an SME in survival or bushcraft, but I hate using the word expert. SME is a general term, subject matter expert, but do I view myself as an expert? No, I view myself as a very well-studied student and I always be a student. So I'm there for basic interview and I'm there for SME work. And they mic me up and they tell me, hey, you got to answer everything like really serious. So I'm not even cracking a smile. And if you guys know me, I always teach with enthusiasm and I'm, I'm always laughing. I'm always joking. I'm having a great time. So now I'm delivering lines deadpan. And you can still find this footage if you go on. Uh, the producer's name was Phil Alaco. And he has a website called like Make Things Work or Make Things Happen. And then you go under television and then Expedition Africa, you'll see photos of me and you'll laugh your ass off because I'm all like baby faced and, you know, clean shaven and talking really serious. So uh, day one, I'm just answering questions and they've got me, you know, mic'd up and they actually put makeup on me, which is the first time I've ever worn makeup. Not the last time because it was also for another show later on and it's just still never, I can never get used to that. So, uh, you know, day one is done. And this is a true story. Day one's done. They had sushi for us or like catering was awesome. And I was like, Hey man, you know, I'm coming back tomorrow. I'm going to show you a whole bunch of traps. I want to get some things ready to go. Do you mind if I go in the backyard and I, you know, stage some stuff? They're like, Oh yeah, yeah. So I don't know how it happened, but communication was crossed about what I could cut. And I thought that the wood that I was directed to was dry meaning that it had no flex in it whatsoever. Well, the first swipe of my machete onto the branches that were in this pile, one of the branches came back and whacked me in the right eye. And I fell to the ground with this intense, intense searing pain in my right eye. So now the only thing I could think to do was I put the machete, the flat of the blade against my eye because it was cold and it felt good, right? So I go back up to the top. I'm like, what the hell just happened? I opened my eye a little bit and I, I like it's blurry and it's painful, but I can see like I can see shadows, but I can't see clear pictures. The doctor that was up there, he was working for the Wilderness Medical Associates. His name was Dr. Jay Lemery. Awesome guy. Really nice guy. And I'm like, Doc, you got to take a look at my eye. I think I got something in it. He goes, OK, open it up. I open up my eye. He kind of like holds it open with his two fingers. And he's like, oh, looks like you got some debris in there. Let's let's flush it out. 
So he takes a water bottle, he pokes a hole in the top of the water bottle, and he squirts it in my eye. And if you guys are ever wondering where I got that irrigation technique from in my book, I actually had to use it. Um, and it was from Doc. So he's like, just go home. You'll probably be fine. Get some rest. I go home that night and around like 2.33 in the morning, I'm living at my parents' house at the time. You know, I'm struggling as a, you know, second or third year teacher making like no money and, you know, didn't have, you know, anywhere really to go. And I was still in grad school, uh, finishing up a degree. So I'm in Bristol and I'm like, oh my God, I keep my eye. Oh my God, my eye. Like it was painful, like really bad, even worse than it was before, like 10 times worse. So I call up uh, my friend, Nicole and Nicole's father was an optometrist. And I was like, you got to tell your dad, he's got to see me like right now. I hate calling you this early. Please make it happen. So she calls up her dad, the dad who knows my dad from years and years ago. It's like, look, come on down. I'll meet you at the office. Meets me at the office. He takes a look at my eye and he goes, oh yeah, you, uh, you scratch your cornea. Here's some numbing drops. He puts some numbing drops in my eye. He goes, you gotta be careful. Um, you could probably do the second day of filming, but come back immediately after you see me or after you do it. So I proceeded to do the second day of filming, building fires and then you need to build fires and I'm making tripod uh, cooking structures and fish baskets. And like, I'm doing bushcraft overload. Everyone was really, really impressed. The whole time I'm wearing sunglasses. <laughs> I didn't want anyone seeing like my eyes watering, making it look like I'm crying because I'm so proud of my work. And you know, the funny thing is there were a couple times where the actor that they had couldn't do the skill set. So they put his clothes on my back and the close-ups of hands making fires and things like that are actually my hands because they're like, oh, you'll be like a like stunt hands. So uh, I finished that up. I go and uh, I, I drive home and driving home was dangerous, right? Like I had to like look out of one eye driving home, which I don't recommend. And I, I go see the doc and the doc is like, all right, we got to put an eye patch on you and you got to have that eye patch on for like 24 hours or so. And I'm like, Oh my God. He goes, we don't know if you've sustained any vision loss, but we'll know when the eye patch comes off. Now imagine hearing that, right? Imagine hearing you've got this eye patch on and you know, when this eye patch is on your, your, your vision is in question, right? So now I'm sitting at home and I'm like, Oh my God, I call out of work. And I eventually go back to see the doc and he's like, okay. Uh, and I, I, to paraphrase him, I mean, I'm not an optometrist. I believe he said something like there are five layers of your cornea and you cut three. Like it was bad. Like one more, you would have had, you know, partial vision loss. All five, you have permanent vision loss, something like that. I know, I know what I did was on the verge, on the cusp of losing vision. So for the next six months, I had to do like a religious routine every morning, antibacterial, eye drops in my eye every night, antibacterial eye drops in my eye. And I did that for six months to this day. If I am dehydrated, the scar on my cornea is horizontal. If I'm dehydrated, my eye will stick. I will have to wake up and I'll have to use my fingers to open my eyelid. And when I close and open my eye, the way that the doctor described it, he said, imagine having a slash on the back of your hand. And now you put your hand in and out of your pocket. And every time that you put your hand inside your pocket, it opens it up. That's what's happening with your eye. I was like, awesome. So one of the tricks that I learned from that very painful experience is if you are going to carry antibiotic ointment in your emergency kit, carry ophthalmic antibiotic ointment, which means you can use it in your eyes. 
you cannot use other antibacterial or antibiotic ointment for say like cuts on your body in your eyes, but you can use the one for your eyes anywhere on your body. So if you have a doctor who will write you a script, get the good stuff and that's what you carry. So you kill two birds with one stone. Now that show eventually aired. I would get messages from friends saying, Hey, I was in the movie theater and I saw, you know, your giant forehead on the screen. And, you know, people started saying like, dude, you worked for the history channel. That's awesome. That was a major feather in my cap. And it led to other things, right? Getting on that screen was very important because now I didn't just appear in magazines and I wasn't just teaching around the fire. I was reaching a bigger audience. Okay. And it was a video format, which I wasn't used to. Like I didn't have a YouTube at that time. And that's how it kept going and it kept going and it kept going for a few years after that. At some point though, and this is where I'm going to pick up in the next podcast. At some point I knew I had to branch away from the Wilderness Learning Center. I was still teaching there and I needed to do something where I could say, look, this is my company that I'm doing the writing for and you know, history channel stuff for and, and whatnot, because I knew that at some point the Wilderness Learning Center was going to close. And before it closed, Marty offered it to me. He said, look, all you have to do is pay the insurance and I'll give you the school. Pay the insurance, you can use the property whenever. And I was like, Marty, it's five and a half hours away from me. It's not practical. And I gave up on that opportunity because it wasn't the right time. And as you're going to find out in your journey, you might be offered something, but the timing is too soon or maybe it's too late. The timing has to be right for you to make certain decisions. And for me, it wasn't the right time. Even though I wanted it, it would have been a major, major commitment. And especially with elderly parents, even at that time, I didn't want to be away from them for that long. And it wouldn't have been easy to do because Marty and Aggie were going to travel and I wasn't going to have a, I didn't have a camp cook, right? I didn't have Aggie. So, uh, I decided it wasn't the right time, but, uh, it was interesting because I maintained that excellent, excellent friendship with Marty, even though I started my own company. And like I said, from 2007 to 2012 is when I worked with Marty and it was fantastic. Really, really cut my teeth there. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier on in the podcast, you're going to become like your instructor and your instructor can be a tyrant. Your instructor can be a sage. And Marty always positioned himself as a source of knowledge and he would let the knowledge be the argument, right? I mean, he could just walk you into making a fool out of yourself if you thought you knew more than him, which is something that I've always enjoyed doing because of him. So if I were to say I'm going to become like my instructor uh, or you're going to become like your instructor, I will say that I definitely became like Marty. I will never, ever have Marty's skill set, right? Everyone is going to have their own unique skill set. Marty's was uh, to become one of the, he became the the ultimate plant authority. But Marty didn't know other things, right? And that's why he liked having me around and he liked having other students around and whatnot because he was always learning as well. So you can have a strength, but be open to learning other things. And you should always recognize that there's something new to learn. There's always a different way to do things. And if you ever meet someone that says, you're good, that's it. There's no such thing. Your goal is to constantly, constantly strive to become a better version of yourself uh, from one day to the next, right? If you're not learning, you're not growing. So that takes us to 2011. And that's where this podcast is going to end off. Guys, everyone's got a different story. This is about half of mine. 
leading up to the point of me working at Fieldcraft Survival and here at Fieldcraft Training. I'm going to put a plug in for us here at Fieldcraft Training. We've got some awesome instructors that I am proud to work with. Kirsten Morgan, Jerry Young, Doc Mack, Kevin Owens. I mean, we've got some awesome people here in North Carolina. We are setting the standard for training. I'll simply say it. We we do it in a way that other people don't, right? I'm not going to say it's the best way. I'm not going to say it's the only way, but we do it different. And the way that we do it is freaking awesome. So guys, please check out Fieldcraft Training uh, on Instagram. Follow all those folks I just mentioned. If you have any questions, hit me up, Estella at fieldcraftsurvival.com. And, uh, you know, I always struggle with how I'm going to end each podcast, right? Like, I don't just want to say, all right, that's it. Bye. Um, and I don't want to be long winded, but something I've been saying a lot lately that ties into my philosophy is I enjoy educating, equipping, and empowering you. So hopefully that's what this podcast did. All right, guys, till the next time.